Michael Brown's death in Ferguson sparked a modern-day civil rights movement. But the push to hold police officers accountable largely passed the St. Louis region by, especially as other places elected people and enacted policies that aligned with what Ferguson activists wanted. New Year's Day of 2019, though, marked something of a turning point. That's when a huge crowd gathered in frigid weather at the St. Louis County Government Center to see Wesley Bell sworn in as St. Louis County's first black prosecutor. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. Thank you. Bell used part of his speech to call back to why he was even elected in the first place, a political realignment that brought white and black residents together in a county that became infamous for racial division. We can't do it alone. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, we have to go together. Five years after demonstrations over Brown's death captivated the country and then faded from the national news feeds, St. Louis County is beginning to experience substantial political and policy change. But for some activists like Cori Bush, it's difficult to celebrate relative local progress with so many setbacks on a state and national level. I do a lot of traveling, and I hear people from around the country, activists, other uh, politicians talk about the work, that the things that are changing in their communities. Um, and then they, and some of them have referenced, but you know, in Missouri, you know, you all can't seem to get anything through. On this edition of Politically Speaking, Rachel Lipman, Julie O'Donohue, and I take stock of how Ferguson changed politics and policy here, and whether elections and past bills is a fair metric for measuring change. In the months and years after Michael Brown's death, political and policy change appeared out of reach. Candidates some Ferguson activists strenuously opposed, such as Steve Stanger and Lida Krusen, won races for St. Louis County Executive and St. Louis Mayor, respectively. And while other states pass bills that change how police officers do their jobs and are investigated, Missouri seriously lagged behind the pack. Even a marquee bill that curtailed the percentage of traffic fines cities could have in their budgets was partially struck down in court. But the political ground began to shift in 2018, when Bell upended incumbent St. Louis prosecutor Bob McCullough. McCullough, of course, was the prosecutor in office when a grand jury declined to charge former Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. Hello. What's up, sir? Good to see you. How you doing, man? How's the... Yeah, sure. Right before the five-year anniversary of Brown's death, I met with Bell in his office at the St. Louis County Justice Center. We talked about a lot of topics, including how he saw a wide swath of the county interested in a criminal justice overhaul as he campaigned in 2018. People didn't feel that this that the system, the justice system, actually worked for them. And 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 just to be clear on that, because I've knocked on doors all over this county, whether you're in North County and. Um, in, or in some of the poorest communities, or you're in West County, South County, and some of our rich, rich, more affluent communities, if you will. People just want to be treated fairly. Bell's candidacy heralded the arrival of a new majority consisting of black voters in North St. Louis County and white progressives in the county's central corridor. This is a coalition that came about in an overwhelmingly white county with a legacy of racial segregation. Bell is hitting the ground running and implementing agenda items inspired by Ferguson activism. 
That includes diversion programs aimed at steering nonviolent offenders to rehabilitation, and it also includes a unit within his office to investigate instances when police officers use deadly force. If we know that the biggest driver of crime is drugs, mental health, why are we not taking a more proactive approach to offer um, drug treatment, mental health care? Um, but also we can't stop there. We have to look at crime as a comprehensive as a comprehensive problem, which starts with also education, which starts with job opportunities. There's some evidence that the political and policy push that brought Bell into the prosecutor's office is having an impact on the rest of county government. That didn't seem to be the case at the beginning of 2019, especially since then-County Executive Stanger had little incentive to cater to black political leaders and progressive activists who worked against his 2018 re-election campaign. After Stanger resigned when he was indicted on federal corruption charges, St. Louis County Executive Sam Page, at least early on, took a different policy approach. You know, the concept of treating people right in, in an equitable way in diversity are, are issues that I've always been for. Um, you know, the vehicle to correct those hasn't always been clear. Um, you know, being in an executive position allows me to execute things that I want to do more effectively. In the roughly 100 days since Page took office, the county council has approved a deal delivering body cameras for the St. Louis County Police Department. Page has also appointed a board to look at problems at the county's Justice Center and intervened in a bid to save public housing in the largely black city of Wellston. And he's promised to forge a more cooperative relationship with a council that elected people to office that have made following the post-Ferguson policy push a priority, like recently elected Councilwoman Kelly Dunaway. I think that segregation is one of the biggest issues that's impacting our region from being able to move forward and advance into a growing economy. I mean, we're stagnant. We have a fine economy. People are working here, but it's not growing like other cities our size. And I believe that segregation is a huge part of that. Page contends that Stenger stunted policy progress in the aftermath of Brown's death. So I asked him whether members of the council, which for a time was aligned with Stenger, did enough to move the policy needle. Well, I think historically we always wish we would have done more. Um, we identified the opportunities that were presented. Uh, we depend a lot um, in St. Louis County government. Uh, we depend a lot on issues to be brought forward to us and to make choices. So we made choices from the information that was presented to us. But I think knowing what I know now, I'm sure I could have done more. But uh, as a new council member, uh, learning the budget process, learning the role of the county council, um, you know, I'm sure we didn't accomplish as much as we wanted to. So now we're going to break this down a little further. And to do that, joining me now are Rachel Lippman and Julie O'Donohue, two members of St. Louis Public Radio's political team. Rachel, you covered Bell's bid to become St. Louis County's prosecutor. How do you think he was able to cobble together this multiracial coalition, especially when the county tends to vote 
predominantly on racial lines. This was probably the biggest surprise of kind of the Ferguson political fallout aftermath, whatever you want to call it, was Bell's ability to defeat Bob McCullough, just the longtime county prosecutor who kind of became a national figure in his own right after Michael Brown was shot and killed. I think there are a number of things at work here. Number one is national activism and money kind of spent in the right places and the right ways. They used it to get out the vote in more traditionally black areas of St. Louis County and run up some of the margins of victory. Bell won in some areas with 80 to 90 percent of the vote. The coalition was also able to connect the right to work issue and social justice. Part of what was so surprising about Bell's victory is that it came in the same election as a referendum on the state's right to work issue, which you think would drive out a lot of labor voters in South St. Louis County, which is traditionally a stronghold for McCullough. What happened was this coalition was able to connect right to work as a social justice issue and say, if you believe in social justice, you are also going to want to vote for Wesley Bell. And I think McCullough also just didn't realize the dynamics at work. I think he did not realize how unpopular he had become in certain areas of St. Louis County. Julie, you were working as a reporter in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when a police officer killed Alton Sterling, a 37-year-old black man who was, who was killed by two police officers. Did it prompt a policy and political realignment like it's done in St. Louis County? Before you can answer that question or I can answer it, I have to explain a couple other things that happened that week. Um, so Alton Sterling was killed by a police officer uh, on July 5th. On July 6th, Philando Castile in Minnesota was killed by a police officer. And then on July 7th, uh, a man opened fire on Dallas police officers, killing five and injuring, I believe, nine. So all of that was kind of like in the mix. Um, And then two weeks later, a man opened fire on law enforcement officers in Baton Rouge, uh, killing three people and injuring three others. Uh, And then a month later in Baton Rouge, um, there was a massive flood that particularly affected both the area of the community where police officers tend to live and the predominantly African-American part of Baton Rouge, too. So uh, there was a lot going on. And I think some some of the outrage and uh, response to Alton Sterling's death didn't come until later because people were dealing with other issues like whether they had a house to live in or, you know, think, you know, a lot of people were displaced for for about several months after that. So um, I think like initially the big concern was uh, whether this was going to divide Baton Rouge more. I would say it's pretty divided and, and whether that was going to continue to be a problem um, and whether police police relations with the black community was going to get worse. Um I can talk about this further, but like a couple of things that happened were a new mayor got elected. Uh, the the current mayor uh, was termed out and the new mayor came in. Yeah, that was going to be my next question about whether the aftermath of the shooting caused changes in local Sh- government. Yeah, sure. Yes, I think so. So uh, Mayor Sharon Weston Broom is an African-American woman. She replaced a African-American man. Uh, I think she would have had a very good shot of winning re-election anyways, but I do think that There were people, uh, I would say particularly people in the white community, that were very concerned that if the Republican that was running against her got elected, that things would become much, much more divisive. Like they wanted someone who was a little bit more of a unifying uh, figure, and I think Sharon was perceived to be that. 
Uh, she, it took her a bit, but she replaced the police chief. The new police chief in Baton Rouge, who was an African-American man, he's had a very different tone in dealing with the aftermath of this stuff. He uh, fired the police officer that killed Alton Sterling this week. Even as recently as this week, he apologized for that officer ever having been hired. Uh, he's just had a very different approach. So there were definitely changes. One thing, Rachel, that I've noticed is that activists in the city of St. Louis haven't had the degree of success in creating a similar multiracial coalition as the county. And I'm not the only person who's observed this. Fifth Ward Democratic Committeeman Rasheen Aldridge had this to say about the relative lack of unity. We want to be the guy or the gal so many times, and I'm going to shade more of my, my bros, but more the guys always want to be oh, macho man, and in the black community, we, we got to put that aside. We got to put the pettiness of once I run against you, we're total enemies. We got to put that aside because it's too much at stake. And that's what hold us back in the black community. And I think on a larger scale, eventually hold us back on a political scale in the city of St. Louis. Aldridge noted that a coalition was able to form to elect Kim Gardner as circuit attorney, but not get preferred candidates across the finish line in the mayor board of alderman president's race. Why is that, Rachel? I think Rasheen just kind of nails it and sums it up better than I could. Um, I'd add, too, that there's a lot of perfect as the enemy of the good. There are a lot of people who want true believers that exactly align with their policy objectives, uh, the competition to see who may be more progressive. Um, they, they, there's no ability to say, you know what, this person doesn't support what I want 100 percent, but I will take it because they outline or fit my view of the world a majority or more of the time than this other candidate. There's a lot of personal and family disputes tangled into St. Louis politics, always have been, probably always will be. That is just kind of, I think, a natural thing within a small political family. There's still a little bit, too, I think, of a disagreement about what it means to be a Democrat. And a lot of energies get devoted to fighting out that. And I also think that there isn't a unifying force to kind of come in a lot of the times and and get everyone rowing in the same direction. Bell had some outside help to do that, and Gardner had some outside help to do that as well, someone who could get everyone to kind of put aside their petty differences. The city really, I think, needs a coach to be able to put together a coalition, and they don't always have that. We'll be right back after this message. So let's take the lens back a bit and head to Jefferson City, where many of the ideas advanced after the Ferguson protests have faced a much tougher reception than in local government. Unlike some other states, Missouri has not established a centralized database when a law enforcement official uses deadly force. They also haven't passed any laws changing how police officers are trained. It would be an overstatement, though, to say that nothing got done in the Missouri General Assembly since Brown was killed five years ago. For instance, the year after Brown's death, lawmakers passed a sweeping overhaul of the state's municipal court system, including that aforementioned provision that curtailed the percentage of fine revenue cities could keep in their budgets. Attorney General Eric Schmidt sponsored that measure when he was a member of the Missouri Senate. The overarching theme behind all of that Senate Bill 5 legislation was that there was a breakdown in trust between people in their court system and people in their local government because people were being treated as ATMs. And law enforcement, by the way, supported it because 
They don't want to write traffic tickets all day long. They'd much rather rebuild that trust. There also seemed to be more momentum this year around what supporters call criminal justice reform. Among other things, Governor Mike Parson signed legislation into law that pairs down on mandatory minimum sentences for certain crimes. Democratic State Senator Carla May of St. Louis was able to work with very conservative Republicans on the issue, including Senator Ed Emery of Lamar. I was working on a mandatory minimum legislation, and he was working on mandatory minimum legislation. And he actually came and asked me, can we work together? I told him, oh, my God, I would love it. So we did work together on, uh, you know, finding out, you know, crimes would continue to have mandatory minimums and what crimes would not have mandatory prison terms. Rachel, you finished up a story about how municipal courts have changed over the past five years, especially after now Attorney General Schmidt's bill. How do you think legislative action moved the needle on that issue? I think you needed to have legislative action to get what was the core of what is known as Senate Bill 5, which was a limit on the amount that cities could take in from fines and fees. It's set that at 20 percent. There's no other real mechanism to force that change. But if you go a little bit more systemically and looking at municipal courts, there's been no real movement. If you look at the attorney general's latest report on traffic stops in the area, uh, African-American drivers are still getting pulled over searched and arrested at much, much higher rates than their white counterparts. And that just is something that I don't think you can address legislatively. Julie, you did some research about what other states have done in the criminal justice and policing realm since Michael Brown's death. What did you find? I think there's three really big outcomes. Um, One is the military style equipment that some police departments are using. Um, There was like a new scrutiny of that, I think, post- Uh, Michael Brown's death. The second one is um, what Rachel was talking about. I think a lot of um, national groups, academics, uh, including other and and other states are looking at predatory fines and fees. Um, I don't think that was a focus of like criminal justice, uh, what they call the criminal justice reform movement before Ferguson. And then the third one is, um, and, and it's actually been picking up since after the police officers were killed in Baton Rouge and and Dallas uh, is the Blue Lives Matter movement, which is um, a movement in which states are putting uh, police officers in their hate crime statute. So attacking or killing a police officer has become a hate crime in several states. Louisiana was a leader in that. They actually passed the first bill and they passed it before Alton Sterling's killing. But I am sure some of that was related to what happened here. Um, But that's definitely picked up steam. So Julie alluded to something that I also sensed while covering the post-Ferguson policy push in Missouri, a backlash to the demonstrations. A great example took place in March 2016 at the Peabody Opera House in St. Louis. That's when then-presidential candidate Donald Trump was speaking before a packed crowd. About a third of the way through his speech, he started getting interrupted by protesters, and he painted a very clear picture about what he thought about the demonstrations. These people are so bad for our country, you have no idea, folks. You have no idea. They contribute nothing, nothing. And look at the police. They take their lives in their hands. All right, yep, get them out. Thank you. Now, I want to be clear about something. Not everybody who was protesting Trump that day took part in the activism that came about after Brown's death. 
But there's no question that Trump made the rejection of the protest movement and an embrace of law enforcement a part of his successful presidential campaign. And he was clearly tapping into a backlash that some Missouri politicians saw firsthand. For example, State Representative Shane Roden says some of his constituents are still upset that politicians have been accommodating Ferguson protester demands. The Cedar Hill Republican cites discontent with how politicians like former Governor Jane Nixon handled the Ferguson protests as one of the reasons he was elected to the Missouri House in the first place. The people in Jefferson County, from the outside view, were mad. I mean, it was an absolute disgrace. This is what happens when politics get involved in law enforcement issues. And and that played out, I think, a little bit into my race as well. Uh, people were not thrilled about what they're seeing, and they're still not. Cory Bush, the Ferguson activist who unsuccessfully ran for the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House after Brown's death, became increasingly frustrated with some of the rhetoric she saw over the past few years. One thing that would really drive me nuts when people would say, well, you know, I stand 100 percent with law enforcement. Um, uh, you don't stand 100 percent with your spouse. So let's stop that. Number one, um, you don't stand 100 percent with your children and you love them dearly. Uh, so you don't stand 100 percent with anyone. You shouldn't. Some elected officials who were either inspired by or participated in the Ferguson protests have been subject to harsh scrutiny. St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner is ensnared in a controversy over how she handled the prosecution of former Governor Eric Greitens. Former State Representative Bruce Franks also faced ridicule on a number of fronts, including from GOP colleagues who were upset over his arrest for helping block a highway during a 2017 protest. While Franks pointed to the election of a number of younger officials as a sign of progress, he's been frustrated with the infighting and jealousy that came with the transition into the political arena. We have so many different things to work on. Um, We still have to weed out, um, and I'm speaking about my community, we have to weed out those who look like us that ain't really for us. We got to stop voting in people that got these same last names who have been doing the same thing for the last 30, 40 years. Right. And and we keep wondering why change hasn't come um, because we're changing leadership. We're not changing leadership at the top. Mm-hmm. Right. We're not changing the leadership at the top of the city, at the top of the state, at the top of our, our national politics. Right. So here is the problem that I've been struggling with since 2014. There's no question that deliberate policy choices played a role in St. Louis's marked racial divisions. Things like slavery, Jim Crow laws, segregated schools, redlining, all of these things created an environment where racism and distrust could fester around the St. Louis region. But some people that I've talked to over the years are not sure that political victories and enacted policy changes can really be a fair measure of progress. And they don't think that five years is nearly enough time to effectively combat systemic racism that's existed in St. Louis and throughout the nation for generations. Kareem Tefpo Jackson is a rapper who was active in the Ferguson protests. He says that the political process is only part of the solution. We have... Uh, some people who are from the community, for the people, by the people that are in office now. Uh, But that's just the start. Uh, I think that political engagement goes so far beyond just voting. And um, if if you're looking for voting to be the sole mechanism to spark change in your immediate life, 
then you're going to be waiting forever. Jackson says that people around the area need to become more aware of a rich history of black culture and civil rights activism that's pulsated throughout the St. Louis region. The first time any type of commercial hip-hop record was even played on the radio uh, was in East St. Louis. So you could essentially say commercial hip-hop was born in East St. Louis. Uh, but if we don't know these things and we don't attach ourselves to the history, we don't talk about people like Elijah Lovejoy, who was a white abolitionist who was ahead of the curve, even ahead of the curve in terms of he, he predated black abolitionists in terms of uh, denouncing slavery. Uh, these are people who are essentially cultural American heroes that we don't uplift and our city gave birth to them. So we should take pride in that. Others believe that white and black people around St. Louis and Missouri need to get to understand each other better. Bush relayed a story to me about when she ran for the U.S. Senate back in 2016. She had just finished making a speech in a predominantly white area when a woman came up to her. And she took my hand. And I'm speaking to someone else. She just walked up and grabbed my hand. And so I turned and looked at her and she started to rub my hand with and I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you rubbing my hand? And she said, I just wanted to see if it rubbed off. And I wasn't offended. What I understood was exposure. She said to me, and some other people in the room said to me, Corey, I'm so glad you're, we're so glad you came because we'd never seen a black person before. The only thing we knew about black people were that you're murderous, you're murderers and you're rapists, you're thugs, you know, and you, everybody's on drugs and you have a lot of babies and you're on welfare. Um, because that's what we see in them. That's what we see on TV. We're sorry. So many of them said that in that moment. And when the lady did that and she said, well, I just didn't know just because I've never been around a black person before. I wasn't sure if it came off. So that broke through with a whole group of about 60 white people that had never had that exposure. For his part, Bell says he's noticed that people here now seem more willing to talk openly with each other about inequity and racism. And he says those tough discussions among ordinary people are critical to moving forward. One thing I will say about Ferguson is that um, whatever side of the spectrum you're on with respect to any of these issues, more than likely you've at, at least had a uncomfortable conversation or two or three about these issues. And so you do it, at least see book, book clubs on race, um, community uh, town halls on these types of issues. These issues have to be addressed as more than just African-American or black and brown problems. They have to be addressed for what they are, American problems. I am very cognizant of the fact that this anniversary of Michael Brown's death is probably getting more attention because human beings, for whatever reason, gravitate toward anniversaries in integrals of five. So when the 10-year anniversary comes, we'll probably see similar coverage, 20, 30, et cetera. But one of the big takeaways is, you know, both myself and you, Rachel, have written literally hundreds of thousands of words about Ferguson and its aftermath. And I always like internally struggle about whether all this attention and all this focus we've done has, has really made a difference and changed people's minds about either what happened to Michael Brown or what people in the streets of Ferguson were really doing. And to me, it kind of seems like it showcases the limit of journalism that we can shine the light on all these injustices and all these problems around the St. Louis region. And if people are so hard and fast in their feelings about things, it may not make much of a difference. I mean, yeah, I kind of agree with you on the big takeaway is there's just a lack of movement on anything substantive. 
We had the Ferguson Commission put out its forward through Ferguson report. How much stuff has moved on that? Even something as simple as saying the Missouri Attorney General's office will investigate officer-involved shootings so that local police departments aren't investigating one of their own. There has been no movement on improving the education system, no movement on improving health care, nothing taking this conversation that was started because Michael Brown, a, a son of North County, became a national figure. And I think if you would talk to politicians, they tell you that they don't want to be celebrating another anniversary like that in there. They don't want the fifth anniversary of something else to happen with before we hit the 10th anniversary of Michael Brown's killing. But just there's been no movement on the things that at, were at the root of the interaction between Michael Brown and Darren Wilson. Julie, as a relative newcomer to St. Louis, uh, what does Ferguson mean to you as an outside observer? And do you think the activism and demonstrations that we've been writing about and that you've probably read can change St. Louis? Well, I think like the first thing I noticed is that there are some people who consciously refer to the event, if you will, as the death of Michael Brown instead of calling it Ferguson, which uh, I guess caused me to think about why you might do that. I mean, like, because Ferguson is a place where people live and and you know maybe is probably they're a little sensitive to being defined by this one event that I I think Rachel pointed out in another podcast could have happened very easily a couple blocks away in a different municipality Um, but I think that the big legacy for me and it might be because it's a personal interest of mine is this look at fines and fees and taking a a closer look at that stuff I, I don't know that that's so directly related to the protests. I think that that was a huge blind spot that I'm sure a lot of people who were poor were aware was a really big problem. But I think a lot of people who were middle class, um, certainly wealthy people, but even middle class people kind of, you know, don't realize how a $200 fine for something can spiral into really, you know, being a big problem for your life. And, uh, I'm not sure there's been much movement anywhere in the country on that, but at least people are aware it's a problem. And it seems to be a problem that people on both ends of the political spectrum can get behind. I think that there are some conservative people who are very concerned uh, about government overreach, you know, like people shouldn't be going to jail just because they didn't pay a parking ticket. Uh, and I think I think on the other end of the spectrum, obviously, Democrats are are probably a little concerned about how this affects uh, vulnerable communities and and the African-American community or other minorities in particular. Well, Rachel and Julie, thank you for joining with me about this podcast. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Rachel? At R. Lipman, two P's, two N's. And you, Julie? At J.S. O'Donohue. We'll be back next time. Thank you for listening. <laughs>